Hi, welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. In this short series, we want to explore the stories related to Australia's first expedition to Antarctica. Led by Douglas Mawson, a geologist from Adelaide University, the Australasian Antarctic Expedition of 1911 was to be a scientific and exploratory survey of the largely unexplored territory to our south. Like many of those pioneering adventures, Mawson's team did not escape difficulty and tragedy in the exceptionally harsh environment, but it proved to be a valuable and important exercise for Australian polar exploration, and it helped define the Antarctic territories that Australia claims today. Mawson's story and his contribution to the Antarctic knowledge base will take more than one episode, so I hope today to give you an overview of the era of early exploration there and what was going on at that time, to talk a little about some of the major explorers, particularly those venturing out under the Commonwealth banner, and who enabled Mawson's first foray into the frozen southern land as part of a British expedition. Then in the following episodes we'll talk about the adventures that Mawson took part in during the Nimrod expedition with Shackleton, and then focus on recounting Mawson's own endeavour, the Australasian Antarctic expedition of 1911. But just before we get started on Mawson's story, I wanted to remind you that I'll be suggesting another great podcast that you might like to check out at the end of this one, and that I'll put the reference list, links, and other support material I quote or use in this episode on the Australian Histories Podcast website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. And that's histories spelt with an I-E-S. Two more quick things. I wanted to especially give a shout out to those folks who contacted me to say they'd been enjoying the pods and to those who left some really lovely reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much for taking the time. I was really pleased to hear about the episodes you'd enjoyed. I have jumped around a bit with the topics, so it's good to know that they hit the mark. And the good reviews, of course, are the only way to make the podcast visible in a crowded space, so they're much appreciated too though passing on a link to your friends is fantastic as well. Finally, I wanted to add a quick epilogue to episode 20 last time, building the Sydney Harbour Bridge, to clarify just a couple of points. I suggested the bridge had only been rarely open to the public to walk across, as the source I used for that information implied, but I note that the State Library of New South Wales reports the bridge being open to the public many times over the years, often on the 10-year anniversaries. And, of course, a major celebration occurred to mark the end of World War II, so it's nice to know that the people got to experience the bridge up close on a few more occasions than I had mentioned. And just a clarification on the tolls. The bridge was paid off in 1988, as I mentioned, but of course tolls continued over the years to raise funds for the tunnel, which I noted was built underneath the harbour and opened in 1992, and for the upkeep costs and so on. Sydney siders will know that while the toll booths are long gone, instead of flinging coins into a hamper as in days gone by, the ka-ching of funds being collected today are reflected by a small beep on the electronic tolling tags in the cars. The State Library of New South Wales holds a great deal of archival material related to the building of the bridge. Anyone doing academic research on the bridge would definitely start there. And they also have a collection of related oral histories too. The State Library of New South Wales, using some of that material, have created a five-part series on the harbour and the bridge, which can be read or listened to online, and I'll place a link to that wonderful resource on my webpage too, in case too much bridge is never enough for you. 
So we're up to date now. Let's move on to recounting some more chilly tales from our past. Douglas Mawson and Antarctic Exploration. It's a great story, particularly when you think of the explorers braving that harsh environment with only the resources and facilities available in the early 1900s. The obstacles, danger and the excitement these men experienced have seen them labelled heroic. So let's get stuck into the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. About 42% of Antarctica is claimed as Australian Territory. The Australian Antarctic Division website describes it like this. Antarctica is governed internationally through an Antarctic Treaty system. The treaty was signed in 1959 by the 12 countries whose scientists had been active in and around Antarctica at that time. Among the original signatories of the Antarctic Treaty were Argentina, Australia, Chile, France, New Zealand, Norway and the United Kingdom, with territorial claims to parts of Antarctica, some overlapping. And when you look at those claims on a map, you can still see the overlapping and disputed areas clearly marked. But no one's making a fuss about it. It's just noted. Some treaty parties do not recognise territorial claims and others maintain that they reserve the right to make a claim. All positions are explicitly protected in Article 4 of the Antarctic Treaty, which preserves the status quo. It sounds like a formal gentleman's agreement, really, which came into force in 1961 and has since been acceded to by many other nations. I'll put the link to the claims map in the reference list. Now, before researching this episode, I already knew a little about the big names in Antarctic exploring, well, the three major Commonwealth expedition leaders from that time anyway, Scott, Shackleton and Mawson. And I knew about Amundsen, the Norwegian who undertook his highly successful expedition during the same season as Scott's second journey in 1911. But in doing the reading, it occurred to me that I have had a little confusion from time to time about who was who, who achieved what and when, and which famous quotes I was attributing to whom. I have a friend who, when hiking or if things get difficult with some task or other, simply tells us to find a way or make one. This phrase probably originates from Latin, and it's sometimes a quote attributed to Hannibal, apparently, but we were using it as a sort of a remembered inspiration attributed to an Antarctic explorer. I just could never remember which intrepid and heroic chap I should be thanking for the stoic admonishment. It turns out it was a favourite motto of Scott's. Anyway, it would have been an applicable catchphrase for all of them. In Antarctica, if something was required, one would need to find a way or make one. Even today, at various times of the year, that's it. You're stuck there with just what you have, and you need to make do. Now add in the lack of communication and all the other missing mod cons and any backup rescue options. These guys really were epic in being confident in their abilities to find a way or make one when required. It didn't always work and there were loss of lives but they were a little like the space travellers of their day. They were heading off into a largely unknown 
and unexplored land with an exceptionally harsh environment, out of contact with the rest of the world for one or more years at a time, and with only the supplies in the equipment that they could fit onto the cramped boats that dropped them there. They were incredibly determined, and knowing the immense risk, they were willing to take it. They followed many other courageous explorers, like Magellan or Hui Tirangiora, who went out into unknown and wild seas to find what was there, and such exploration was heroic. It was intrepid, risky and demanding to the point of tragedy, requiring a particular kind of determination and drive. For some, venturing into the south, it was about the exploration and discovery, or about being the first. For others, it was about testing themselves beyond all known limits. For all of them, it was an exceptional and confronting experience, and despite the discomfort, the trauma, the losses and the injuries, and the disappointments, many returned to try and beat the elements again, a second or a third time. To me, that's just so hard to imagine, being willing to live so uncomfortably for so long. I love a long hike, but <laughs> that sleeping on a mat on the tent floor gets old after the first night. I think these folks were just so impressive. Even today with our modern communications, the warm and reliable shelter, the home comforts, good food, entertainment and the prior knowledge about what to expect, Antarctica is still a highly demanding environment. The odd seasons, the weather, the forced isolations can still cause problems for those stationed there. Just recently, in October 2018, there was a sensational news story of a violent attack at the Russian Bellinghausen station on King George Island. A researcher there stabbed a colleague after suffering a, quote, an emotional breakdown. Many news reports implied the attacker had stabbed his colleague because <laughs> the victim would not stop continually revealing the end of books he was reading. And on the last occasion, he just snapped. And, you know, if that was so, there would be many who would claim that his actions were justifiable. There's no way to confirm if that motivation was true, with the authorities slating the breakdown to, quote, tensions in a confined space, unquote, what some might call cabin fever though some reports did mention particular tensions between the two, building up over their six months in isolation. And we will see in the stories we'll be exploring here that this stressed behaviour was evident during those early expeditions too. Now, this is a little off-topic for a retelling of Mawson's Antarctic history, but it's just so interesting I couldn't bring myself to edit it out. So I'll just take a little aside here and talk about a Smithsonian article that I found. They suggested in general that there's not really much crime or violence recorded in these extreme Antarctic environments, with the exception of a bit of alcohol-related argy-bargy at times. But then they recounted a few quite rare but disturbing occurrences. In May of 2000, at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, Australian astrophysicist Rodney Marks died suddenly and unexpectedly after complaining of breathing difficulties. A later autopsy in New Zealand revealed that Marx was poisoned by a fatal dose of methanol. Now whether he drank it intentionally, accidentally or was purposely poisoned was never determined and later reports found that the authorities should have done more to investigate that. But back in 1996, 
FBI agents were sent to McMurdo Station after two cooks got into a fight, one attacking the other with the claw end of a hammer. A third cook was also injured in the fight. The victims received stitches and the assailant was arrested. So, being cooks, the hammer was an interesting choice of weapon, wasn't it? It's lucky no one got their hands to a sharp knife, I think. The article then reports that the same year, 15 people rioted at Australia's Casey station and that a mediator was sent in to cool things down until a relief ship could arrive. I'd love to know what that bun fight was about. And in 1983, a Chilean doctor burnt down his research station rather than face a winter there. I think we can call that an extreme response. They also quote the Canadian Geographic recounting an unconfirmed story that in 1959, at Russia's Vostok station, after losing a chess match, a researcher killed his opponent with an axe. (laughs) Chess was supposedly banned at the Russian Antarctic facilities after that. Well, the poisoning is quite suspect, but I still think revealing the book endings was the worst crime. So we can see that these confined environments with limited and forced social contact in an unusual and extreme environment for long periods of time can still cause psychological issues. A 2008 Lancet review of studies on psychological effects of polar expeditions showed some fairly predictable results, along with some more interesting conclusions. In reviewing the literature, they concluded that people on even short-term expeditions and on the longer overwintering can, as we might imagine, undergo varying degrees of, quote, psychological changes resulting from exposure to long periods of isolation and confinement and the extreme physical environment. Symptoms include disturbed sleep, impaired cognitive ability, negative effect, and here they list depression, anxiety, anger and irritability and interpersonal tension and conflict. But they went on to note that, quote, they also experience positive or so-called salutogenic outcomes resulting from successfully coping with stress and enhanced self-sufficiency, improved health and personal growth. To this list of positive outcomes, they added affiliation and intimacy with fellow crew members, sense of personal achievement, hardiness and resiliency, and an increased sense of humanity, amongst other positive experiences. So while there are some negative impacts, there's also some very life-affirming and uplifting rewards for subjecting yourself to those conditions, as evidenced by the many happy and healthy people who return content and gratified, some of whom are willing to return time and time again. Palinkas and Sudfeld suggest the modern Antarctic facilities now provide the most conducive environments to help avoid the negative outcomes and that modern psychological screening of applicants and quality training and preparation provides the best likelihood of positive outcomes for all. Sleep disturbance was probably the most common negative symptom reported, which of course can contribute to other more negative outcomes. I mean, I've never been to Antarctica, but I've certainly experienced periods of sleep disturbance, and I'm sure many of you would have at some time too, and it permeates all other functions in your life. That feeling of jet lag, an awful state... So nothing can be done about the 24-hour nights that occur throughout the winter season and which can affect the circadian rhythm and moods. But modern knowledge about the seasonal affective disorder and availability of lightbox and other therapies are now an option which was not available to the early explorers. Though interestingly, the paper did note one leader of an 1898 expedition 
subjecting his melancholy men to the baking treatment, (laughs) where he would have the men sit in front of the bright and blazing fire. And the capacity now for remote teleconferencing can mean psychological treatment is available in a way that has not been in the past. But, just to be sure, there should definitely be firm rules about no spoilers allowed for books and movies. In the expeditions that Mawson undertook, there was certainly evidence of some folks coping less well than others, even complete breakdowns. And of course everyone experienced some level of low spirits over time, particularly those exposed to the harshest environments. So fortunately we have come a long way. The psychological isolation can still be extreme for those working in Antarctica, but the stories that really brought that isolation home to me were the instances of medical emergencies. Despite the modern icebreakers and the large runways, in winter it's not possible to safely evacuate people from the Territory. There was the case of uh, Leonid Rogozov, the doctor on the Soviet Antarctic expedition in 1960, who developed appendicitis and had to perform an appendectomy on himself. As they say in modern parlance, I can't even. I had heard that these days one needs to be appendix-free to be eligible to overwinter in Antarctica, but the Australian Antarctic Division's website health page says this only applies for the doctors who are wintering at Australian Antarctic stations at least, as they are often the only doctor throughout the winter. Earlier in the 1950s, a doctor on Heard Island also developed appendicitis and had to be evacuated in what they described as a very challenging circumstance, risking other lives, I guess. And of course, Rogozov, mentioned a moment ago, operating on himself under a local anaesthetic, using mirrors to guide his scalpel. Good Lord. Getting one's appendix removed in a modern mainland hospital prior seems like a very wise option. So we can only imagine how much more challenging all of that would have been in the early days of exploration of the continent, when even reliable ice-breaking ships were rare and housing was a tiny timber flat-pack cabin with a coal stove to keep you fed and warm. I thought I should take the opportunity to clarify which explorer worked with which other explorer, on which mission and when, to give us an understanding of Mawson's interest and experience in relation to the other two major British expedition leaders, that's Scott and Shackleton. These are the ones I'd been getting jumbled in my head with Mawson. At the turn of the century, with a desire to locate the South Pole on everyone's mind, it was a bit of a revolving door of explorers and their teams in Antarctica. Robert Falcon Scott, And what a brilliant name that is. On the Discovery Expedition, known officially as the British National Antarctic Expedition, 1901-04, was to carry out scientific and geographical research and exploration on the virtually untouched continent for the British. They looked at the Antarctic biology, zoology, geology, oceanography, meteorology and magnetism. They identified, along with other topographical points of interest, the only snow-free valleys containing Antarctica's longest river, along with the Cape Crozier Penguin Rookery, and they identified the High Polar Plateau, on which the South Pole is located. Scott's team did attempt to reach the South Pole on this first trip, in the footsteps of an earlier British attempt, but he was unsuccessful. Most in his team were disciplined and competent men, but only a couple had polar experience, and only one had been to Antarctica before. 
Though they were taking dog teams, no one was an expert at handling them, so that was going to be a challenge. Scott's third officer on this expedition was the young Ernest Shackleton. Scott, like the Ross and the Borchgrevink British expeditions previously, was to work in the Ross Sea sector of the Territory, the area to date that they had the most knowledge of. Making landfall first at Cape Adair, then Cape Crozier on the northern side of Ross Island, they undertook various activities on the way, charting, recording and noting conditions, and on reaching the Great Ice Barrier, they deployed a huge tethered observation balloon from the ice shelf there to make an aerial survey. Scott ascended first on the tethered balloon, reaching about 180 metres, that's about 600 feet, above the ice. Then Shackleton had a go, though others in the team thought them both quite mad to take such a risk. But it did help confirm for them the immense extent of the ice shelf there. Their boat, the Discovery, continued around westward then, into McMurdo Sound, where they set up their permanent quarters at Hut Point, on Ross Island's southern peninsula. That great ice barrier, or as we generally call it today, the Ross Ice Shelf, forms a massive, deep ice platform across the Ross Sea, to the east of McMurdo Sound. I'll put a few images and links to maps on the webpage, but you can just use Google Maps to get an idea of the area we're talking about here. Hut Point is presently marked as McMurdo Station, which is the United States Antarctic Research Facility there, housed within the present territorial claim of New Zealand. Scott and his team set up their cabins, prepared themselves to overwinter there, and began learning how to ski, sledge and manage the dog teams. They would need to master all the many skills that would be required in that environment, but which were, for most of them, new and quite foreign. Indeed, it was savage. Only a month later, after being caught out on an icy slope in a blizzard while returning from an attempt to reach Cape Crozier, George Vince slipped, and sliding down the slope he fell over the cliff and was killed. The environment was so hostile that they even had to learn new ways of moving around in the extreme conditions to reduce those risks. They largely hunkered down over winter, undertaking their work indoors, but heading towards the new summer season they began more expeditions into the surrounds. Again learning how to work the sledges and dog teams, and they began to prepare for their attempt on the pole. Scott sent Royd's team to make their way to Cape Crozier again, where it had been prearranged the party would leave messages at the post there, away from the ice shelf, for the boat to collect, and this time the trip was more successful, with the team members discovering the huge penguin colony there, and then returning safely. Cape Crozier is now an Antarctic Specially Protected Area, with restricted access, to preserve the bird colonies in the flora. It remains one of the largest Adelie penguin colonies in the world, the southernmost emperor penguin colony, and there's also a substantial skewer population. Several rare species of lichens have been identified there too. Another team, led by Armitage, charted the mountains to the west, but when they returned they were exhibiting symptoms of scurvy. Fortunately, tweaking their diet, they all recovered their health. The main event, an attempt at the pole, was then readied for November. Scott, Wilson and Shackleton left the hut on November 2nd, 1902, intending to reach the pole if possible, or at least explore new areas. Borchgrevink's expedition of 1898 had previously traversed a vast distance across the ice shelf, getting as far south as 78 degrees 50 minutes south. 
Scott's team reached that point on the 11th of November. But their progress was slower than they had anticipated, not having the skilled dog handlers with them. And it appeared that they'd brought really poor food for the dogs, causing them to weaken as the days progressed. This meant that they sometimes had to carry only half the equipment forward and then return to collect the second half, meaning they were walking backwards and forwards over the same ground, tripling the distance travelled each day. So this took a toll on the men, and they were clearly struggling, affected by snow blindness, frostbite, and again, symptoms of early scurvy. We forget how recent our knowledge of nutrition and good food preparation really is. Clearly, they had not been provisioned with the appropriately nutritious rations. Snow blindness is a painful, if temporary, loss of vision due to overexposure to the sun's UV rays. Essentially, it's a sunburned cornea. These days, we'd wear lenses that can effectively block out 100% of those UV rays, but these chaps, despite having really the high-tech options of the day, were really up against it. On December 30th, 1902, still traipsing across the ice barrier and not yet on the highland plateau, they reached 82 degrees, 17 minutes south, and here they made a decision to turn back. It was probably a crucial decision that saved their lives as the return trip became ever more difficult. The remaining dogs were dying and being used to feed the others and Shackleton became completely debilitated from scurvy, unable to manhaul a sledge or sometimes to even walk. We're probably more familiar with scurvy as a condition that beset long-distance sailors before cooks started force-feeding them sauerkraut, which apparently has a nice store of ascorbic acid. Scurvy results from a lack of vitamin C in your diet and will usually manifest within weeks of the deficit. You need a regular intake to stay healthy. Knowing that the earlier team had already experienced some symptoms, Scott should have noted the potential problem with the rations, and even those at the hut were probably marginal on the intake already. But whatever they did to modify the diets, it was not sufficient for those trekking in the elements. Symptoms of scurvy include weakness, feeling tired with sore arms and legs, and as the condition worsens, your body produces less red blood cells, develops gum disease, and fails to heal any wounds. And bleeding from the skin can occur. Untreated, it can lead to personality changes and then finally death from infection or from bleeding. Today, small vitamin C tablets would be added to the rations with virtually no register to the weight or the volume of the rations haul. Quite amazing. They arrived back on the 3rd of February 1903, after 93 days travelling, having covered 1,540 kilometres, that's about 960 miles, on foot, including those equipment relays. So, given the circumstances, I think the average day's walk of about 16 kilometres was not bad, really, seeing as they spent a good deal of their time walking backwards and forwards. But, no doubt, if they could have got healthy dog teams working well, they would have covered much more distance. That failure seems to have put Scott off the idea of using dogs in the future. A resupply ship had brought further provisions, as it was intended that the Discovery would stay on in the region, further mapping and exploring. But the Discovery itself ended up becoming trapped in the ice, and the party prepared to overwinter in the hut again. 
The supply ship was able to take home any persons who couldn't stay, and Scott insisted that Shackleton be shipped back for care after his collapse, despite Shackleton's strong objections. While he was unhappy about the decision, and there has been speculation that their relationship began to break down after the ordeal and Scott's decision, there is also evidence that Scott and Shackleton remained on cordial terms. And Shackleton was present to greet and celebrate the expedition's return in 1904. I think Scott's expedition, while celebrated, was considered only a moderate success, really. They had gathered very valuable information, but he had failed to reach the pole. And those showy firsts were important to the public and to him. He would have begun pretty soon thinking about how he could write that. What was also clear, though, for Shackleton, was that his ordeal had not put him off Antarctic exploration. With his explorer's appetite whetted, Shackleton himself began making plans to lead an expedition the next time. And it would be on Shackleton's second foray, but first as expedition leader, that a young Australian geologist named Mawson would join his party. Before looking at Mawson's contribution to Shackleton's expedition, let's just have a look at the history of exploration in Antarctica and consider just how much activity was taking place during that period. From the earliest times it was theorised that there must be a great southern land somewhere. It made sense to the European philosophers that the globe, with its northern hemisphere landmass, would need to be balanced by an equal landmass on the other side. Around 150 AD, Ptolemy had described such a land as Terra Australis Incognita, which means unknown land of the south. It was an imagined place, with no actual evidence gathered at that time. But of course there really was a south land, a land mass actually straddling the southern polar region, with extended ice shelves reaching far out into the sea in the winters, and with surrounding islands. Still, it was a long time after the exploration of the global seas began before the Antarctic continent was confirmed, and it's really only very recently that it's been mapped and explored. When the Australian coastlines began being found and mapped by the European explorers, from the 1500s onwards, some thought that land may be the fabled Terra Australis Incognita, and early maps do label it as Terra Australis, Later explorers who ventured into the very southern waters may well have encountered the ice, or at least the broken icebergs of Antarctica, but it really was not confirmed, or at least mapped land, until well into the 1700s. According to Maori legends, recounted in a paper by Turi McFarlane, I'm going to quote from the text here, but I know I'll not manage the Polynesian pronunciation very well, so I will of course provide the links to the original paper so you can try it for yourself. Quote, Hui T. Rangiora, in his canoe, T. Iwioetia, sailed from Rarotonga on a voyage of wonders in that direction, that's south. He saw bare white rocks that towered into the sky from the monstrous seas, a foggy, misty, dark place not shone on by the sun, icebergs, the fifty-foot-long leaves of bull kelp, the walrus or sea elephant, the snowy ice fields of a clime very different from Hui Tirangiora's own warm islands, all these he had seen." Unquote. This voyage was believed to have occurred as far back as the 7th century, the story being passed through time via the oral tradition. So Pacific peoples had ancient oral histories that point to a knowledge of an icy land far to the south, 
speculating that what was seen by Uitirangiora would have been the edges of Antarctica, or at least the broken icebergs from the Ross Ice Shelf, perhaps. Other Polynesian navigators and explorers later discovered and actually settled the Auckland Islands, which lie between present-day New Zealand and Antarctica. Archaeology there suggests the settlement dates around 1300s. What a shock that climate would have been for Pacific Islanders. Certainly European explorers from the 15 and 1600s may also have encountered parts of Antarctica during their travels, and in the 17 and 1800s, Weddell, Ross and explorers like Cook were encountering the northern Antarctic islands, ice sheets and icebergs. The British Antarctic Survey has a nice webpage marking Antarctic discovery and exploration on a timeline, and the Wikipedia entry on the history of Antarctica states, quote, In 1773, James Cook and his crew crossed the Antarctic Circle for the first time, but although they discovered nearby islands, they did not catch sight of Antarctica itself. It is believed he was as close as 240 kilometres, that's 150 miles, from the mainland, unquote. Cook had circumnavigated Antarctica at a higher latitude missing the land, but though he stated there was good evidence that it would be there, he suggested the climate would be so severe as to be useless. But it wasn't useless, far from it. Sealers and whalers began venturing south into the Antarctic Circle following their quarry, as that trade increased. Jacker wrote that the lucrative whaling interest in the south grew as the stocks in the north diminished. By the 1870s, sponsored whaling expeditions were beginning in the south, with interest from the Germans, Norwegians, British and also the Australians. American sealers were also known to work in the area. So it seems we cannot be entirely definitive about who might have stepped on Antarctic ice or on the land first, or who should take credit as the discoverer. But what we can say is that many of the Antarctic explorers' names are now familiar to us, especially in place names across Antarctica, Ross, Weddell, Bellinghausen, Wilkes, Larsen, amongst others. So let's just quickly look at the frenzy of activity that took place in the Antarctic around the era that we're looking at, from 1897 to 1922, otherwise known as the Heroic Age of Antarctic Exploration. A Belgian Antarctic expedition, 1897 to 99, was the first expedition to winter in the Antarctic region. The Southern Cross Expedition, officially known as the British Antarctic Expedition 1898 to 1900, was led by the Anglo-Norwegian polar explorer Karsten Borchgrevink, and it was his footsteps that Scott followed, trying to reach the pole in 1902. The Discovery Expedition that we were discussing earlier, officially known as the British National Antarctic Expedition 1901-04, was led by Robert Falcon Scott and had Ernest Shackleton as third officer, as I mentioned before. The Gauss Expedition of 1901-03 was the first German expedition. 1901-04 saw the first Swedish Antarctic expedition. And there was a Scottish National Antarctic Expedition. 1902-04, which established a manned meteorological station on the Territory. 1904-07 saw another French expedition. The French had actually made two earlier Antarctic explorations. Then the Nimrod expedition, otherwise known as the British Antarctic Expedition 1907-09, and it was the first of three led by Ernest Shackleton. It was this expedition that provided Mawson with his first trip to Antarctica, and so we'll be recounting this expedition in more detail. 
A fourth visit by the French was undertaken between 1908 and 11, then the Japanese in 1910 to 12. Also in 10 to 12, Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen made an attempt at being the first to reach the South Pole. Amundsen had been first mate on that Belgian expedition of 1897 that I mentioned first in the list, and then in 1903 he travelled the Northwest Passage around the North Pole, so he was quite familiar with polar conditions. We'll touch on Amundsen again a little later too. The same time as Amundsen in 1910, Scott set out on the Terra Nova expedition, officially called the British Antarctic Expedition 1910-13, also attempting to be the first to the pole. The Germans undertook a second foray in 1911-13, and finally 1911-14 saw Douglas Mawson undertake the Australasian Antarctic Expedition with the intention of exploring, charting and undertaking scientific discovery across a wide area of Antarctica. Then Shackleton once again returned to lead the Imperial Transatlantic Expedition 1914-1917 and finally the Shackleton-Rowett Expedition of 1921-22 wrapped up the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. So there really was a lot of activity going on in the South, and of course this era was interrupted to some extent by the Great War, though looking at the timelines you would hardly guess. These expeditions had such a long lead time, and once underway the teams could be away for a few years before getting back to the real world. So let's now return to Mawson and hear about how he came to undertake his first trip to Antarctica. Fitzsimons, in his book Mawson, suggests that his desire to join Shackleton's Nimrod expedition in 1907 came as a rather sudden realisation. Immigrating to Australia with his family as a two-year-old from Yorkshire, England, Mawson and his brother grew up as young Australians and excelled at school. Around the time they were getting to the end of their secondary schooling, though, their father, who had tried a number of ventures in Australia without great success, left his wife and the boys behind to try again to make his fortune in New Guinea, suggesting that the boys would get scholarships for university to see them through. <laughs> his mother turned the family home into a boarding house to make ends meet, and the boys were indeed offered scholarships, Douglas entering Sydney University at just 16 years old. There, he completed an engineering degree before also undertaking a science degree, majoring in geology. He actually specialised in the study of radioactive minerals and he was later considered to be one of the earliest authorities on that subject. Jacka and Jacka in their book Mawson's Antarctic Diaries recounts how in 1906 Mawson named the radioactive mineral that he'd discovered and first described Davidite in honour of his mentor and professor Edgeworth David. Professor David recognised Mawson's skill and intelligence and he'd encouraged him to travel and undertake a substantial geological survey in the New Hebrides, now known as Vanuatu. His report, The Geology of the New Hebrides, was one of the first major geological works on Melanesia. Afterwards, in 1905, Mawson took up a position at Adelaide University, lecturing in mineralogy and petrology. But it was the field trips into the South Australian remote areas that he particularly enjoyed. He was instrumental in identifying the radioactive minerals present, as I just mentioned. Indeed, he recorded the first substantial deposit of uranium ore there. But surprisingly, the research he was most keen on then, in those hot 
dry areas of South Australia and outback New South Wales was related to the evidence of ice caps being present there in the distant past. Stones across the study areas showed the telltale scars of retreating glaciers and the glacial sediments of the Precambrian Age more than 500 million years before. Mawson's desire to see such glaciers and ice still in place on the landscape grew. At that time, neither the North or the South Pole had yet been reached. In September of 1907, the British explorer, Ernest Shackleton, who had been so unceremoniously bundled off the Antarctic expedition Scott had led in 1904, was preparing to do just that, to return to the icy South that had nearly beaten him the first time and make another attempt on the Pole. They could also carry out some other scientific investigations and, as luck would have it, Mawson's old mentor, Professor David, was to lead Shackleton's scientific team. Mawson must have begun hoping that a very exciting door might be open for him to let him into the Antarctic world too. At that time it was not even known for sure if Antarctic was a continent or more like the northern polar region, mainly ice flows over a scattering of islands perhaps. Professor David was particularly interested to investigate if Antarctica and Australia were once joined. When Mawson read the news of David accompanying Shackleton's expedition, he began realising what a brilliant opportunity for exploration and understanding a visit to the ice-bound Antarctic would be for him. His mind immediately turned to what he could find out if he could get there himself, and he asked David to check if there were any likelihood that he could join up as well. Fortunately, the professor was delighted in his interest, and he thought Mawson would be very well suited to the mission, so he did recommend him to Shackleton. Jacker reminds us that at this stage, Shackleton himself was little known, and so he struggled to raise the level of funds required for such a venture. Shackleton soon arrived in Australia to prepare for his discovery expedition. The Australian stop gave him another place to try his fundraising luck, giving public lectures and garnering enthusiasm, as he did again in New Zealand. But he made time for an interview with Mawson, at David's urging. During their meeting, Mawson described how keen he was to get to Antarctica, even offering to work his passage there and back as a crewman. He wanted the experience of a lifetime, a chance to see and study the glaciers and geology of Antarctica, and suggested that he needed no pay in return for that opportunity. Shackleton was apparently impressed by his passion and by his physical presence. He could certainly use another fit, hardy and determined team member, but he also required men with the potential to manage mentally the very demanding and isolated environment for an extended period. This was probably the most important trait he needed to discern. Fitzsimons quotes a passage describing part of Shackleton's selection process. Quote, the personnel of an expedition of the character I proposed is a factor on which success depends to a very large extent. The men selected must be qualified for the work and they must also have the special qualifications required to meet polar conditions. They must be able to live together in harmony for a long period without outside communication and it must be remembered that the men whose desires lead them to the untrodden paths of the world have generally marked individuality." Unquote. Fortunately, Mawson's character shone through and Shackleton thought he had what it took. Only three days later, he offered Mawson the paid position of expedition physicist with an annual wage of 
His duties would include being the route surveyor, cartographer and magnetician. Odd, really, as he was a geologist, but of course he jumped at the chance and he immediately began preparing for the journey. He would perform whatever tasks were required. It was too good an opportunity to miss. Having another Australian scientist on the Commonwealth team was helpful too, in that with David pressing the government for funding support for Shackleton's venture, they did indeed shake out more cash from the Australians for the supply of necessary equipment. David had argued successfully that as well as being important because Antarctica was our immediate neighbour to the south, the science they would undertake would be of great value to Australia. The Antarctic influenced our weather to the south and the magnetism was of interest. There might be significant flora and fauna specimens to be brought back and studied and probably the suggestion that pricked up most ears, there might be minerals of interest. He suggested supporting the important expedition would bring international kudos and enhance our growing national identity. And all those things were probably true. Jack quotes from Mawson's correspondence, and I've abridged it here substantially. Quote, I did not even know that Shackleton was going to the Antarctic until I heard that Professor Edgeworth David of Sydney University had inquired about joining the expedition on the Nimrod. Shackleton had agreed. Indicating that the expedition was short of funds and hoping Australia could help, David, whose reputation was very high in Australia, received a grant of £6,000 from the federal government. I met with Shackleton. My idea was to see a continental ice cap in being and become acquainted with glaciation and its geological repercussions. This especially interested me, for in glaciological studies in South Australia, I was face to face with a great accumulation of glacial sediments of Precambrian age, so I desired to see an ice age in being. Unquote. Those of us familiar with the South Australian outback, if not, you could Google a few images, could be amazed by just how different the dry, red, dusty environment there differs from the icy and stark white Antarctic. And yet, at some point in time, it must have looked and felt much the same. Mawson wanted to see the glaciers in the process of weathering the mountains. He was hoping such an insight would help him better interpret the South Australian sediments. But Mawson also understood that while his great interest and the valuable science the expedition could allow, and which in fact was part of the motivation for the funding from Australia, the science would be secondary to the main object of reaching the geographic pole if the expedition was to be considered a success. Mawson had only weeks, really, to make his preparations. He arranged a leave of absence from his university position, and he and his old mentor David gathered their kit and made their way to Littleton Harbour at Christchurch, New Zealand, where the boat, the Nimrod, was being supplied and was awaiting the explorers. David was expected to only travel to the Antarctic for the summer season and return on the boat, a three-month round trip. But now, as they prepared to leave, he wrote letters home to his wife and his employer, saying that he would now be wintering over and would see them in 15 months instead. That's one way of avoiding the discussion, I suppose. By the time they got his messages, he would have been on his way, with no further correspondence being entered into. So Mawson and David joined the Antarctic team there and stowed their gear, ready to depart in the cramped boat on New Year's Day 1908 with a massive crowd ready to wave them off. 
So we're going to pause Mawson's story here, poised to cast off on his first journey to the Antarctic on Shackleton's Nimrod expedition. Next episode, we'll talk about how he fared on the journey and what exploration and science took place during the stay. Shackleton's hunch had been good. Mawson would be a great asset to the team. Before I wrap up, I wanted to bring your attention to a recommended podcast for those with an interest in British or Commonwealth history called The Age of Victoria. Chris Bust's popular Victorian myths covers events across the Commonwealth and the world and focuses on people-centric history. You'll see how the Victorians shaped the world, changed it from the age of horse, musket, cannon and sail to the age of steam, rifle and iron. It's a wonderfully entertaining podcast, illuminating and very easy to listen to. I'll put a link to it on my webpage. And remember, there are some images and the reading list for this episode at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au Join me again for the next part of Mawson's story on the fourth Friday next month. In the words of every clickbait ever, you'll be amazed at the environment they face. (laughs) So have a safe and happy few weeks and I'll talk to you again then. Cheers.